Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Off the Menu with Dara Moskowitz-Grumdahl, the Twin Cities' leading food critic and senior editor of Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine. Off the Menu is all about food in the restaurant, at the market, and on your table. Now, here's Dara on News Talk 830 WCCO. Dara here. All right, here's what I need from you. I need two things. First, I want to know what you're cooking because this always makes me happy. What are you doing? You got a big pot of chili? Are you making cookies? What are you doing to get through this weekend? I want to know about that. And then my other question is about insects. Are you seeing fewer than you did a while ago? There's a a bunch of scientists are all publishing work right now, and it's people are kind of putting it together and saying there's an insect apocalypse. Insect populations are plummeting. But I want to know, are you seeing that? You're seeing fewer fireflies and you drive through the country now, are there fewer things on your windshield than there was when or when you were a kid? Uh, what do you what are you seeing in your life about insects? I want to know. So text me 81807. And the reason I want to know is that we are talking all things bees, honey, insects, biocides, pesticides, plowing, development, all the things. We're just going to do everything today because I have Brian Fredrickson here. Uh, If you care about honey in the Twin Cities, you got to know Brian. He started Ames Farms a while ago. First place I ever knew about that was doing the kind of single source honey. So uh, sometimes he'll have a dandelion honey. He'll have Minnesota Classic basswood honey, uh, different wildflower flower plots, and is always very technologically savvy, and he'll put up on the web where uh, the particular jar of honey is, if you want to know about that. So he is very hard to get on the show because he's very busy <laughs> selling honey at farmer's markets, which happened to happen at the exact same time as my radio show. So I feel very happy to have him here today. So we're going to talk all things, all things the bugs Bugs, bugs, bugs. Insect apocalypse, honey, what you can do, what are you seeing? 81807. And Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dara. All right. Here's what I want to know. Uh, You know, so you've been doing this for a while. You told me very alarmingly that the honey crop, the American honey crop, like the amount of honey that we make in this whole country is down. It's way down. It's expected to be the lowest crop ever. It'll be officially released by the USDA here in another couple of days. But uh, it's been dropping over the years to a pretty low level. All right. So what is that? Why? Why would that possibly be? Most of that is a loss of habitat. Of course, we've had problems with bee populations at times. Um, but new development, cropping techniques, uh, more aggressive herbicides that are being sold through uh, places like Home Depot, 
these things work, unfortunately, and uh, the population is growing. Um, we had some pretty big honey crops back in the 40s. That was the peak of honey production in the United States, and it's been a gradual uh, decrease since then. Yeah, I feel like when I look at old recipes, there's a lot more people using honey. It was a kind of standard, like a, like a, you lived in the country, you didn't have any money. What you were having was corn pancakes and honey. Like that was what America was built on. Uh, and then I look at this study, it was maybe in the 90s, and all of this fake Chinese honey was flooding the market. It was just basically a, a corn syrup solution or uh, honey diluted with stuff. And, you know, prices had plummeted. And then we have this just crazy monocultures and the bees can't get anything out of a cornfield. They can't get anything out of, uh, of, you know, typical just pesticide saturated monoculture. And now, and now here we are, and we have, like, we need them. We need bees. We need honey. We need the wild bees because we everything we eat, not everything, but like a lot of things we eat, are because somebody's pollinated them. Uh, so I don't even know where to start with all that. But you got into this. When did you first start beekeeping? I bought a little orchard in 1994, where the Honeycrisp apple kind of has its roots. The horticulturists that created it, David Bedford, it was his property. Two beehives came with it, and as they say, the rest is history. I a uh, mentor I had, uh, Harry Stewart, passed away around 2002 and left me with 100 beehives. So that, that was an important growing step. And so that was right at the the beginning of what we think of now as kind of a, the organic revolution, the organic hinge. It all started in... I want to say 97 or 99 with the organic standards. Those are kind of the – I think it was the comment period began in 97 and it was officially turned into like an organic standards in 99. And then people started buying places like Whole Foods. But that has turned out to be a sort of a, a deceptive well, – not I don't want to say deceptive. The organic standards were great. They established a lot of stuff and then those have been – being eroded lately you've you've talked to me about you know used to be a couple farmers markets very popular and now far, too many farmers markets maybe so let's talk about step by step first step are people appreciating the farmers markets you said you've seen customers really stop coming well i, I think what's happened in some ways the food movement was successful we have better quality local uh, sustainably grown food at many outlets now, everywhere from Cub Foods to um, even Aldi's is in on it now. But many of those are produced in more industrial type of situations or come from China with a little less rigorous oversight. They have that valuable organic label on the side, and it's generated a lot of money. And it's a hot category for these new um, Stores like we see Fresh Time that's moved into the metro. To me, okay. Um, so we used to have our co-ops, right? No, we still have them. Our wonderful co-ops. We have these great co-ops in the Twin Cities. You know, places like the Wedge, Linden Hills Co-op, Seward Co-op. I mean, so these were initially in the hippie seventies, kind of volunteer-run, volunteer-led. Like, really, uh, came out of our our native Grange movement here. A lot of Scandinavian immigrants brought their economic ideas 
hippies made co-ops out of them. Like, and so we have this great network of co-ops. And then they supported uh, people like you, different farmers, all kinds of good things. And then we have these basically corporate lookalikes that have flooded the market. Talk to me about that. You were saying in the green room, we were chit-chatting, fresh time. You're you're not a fan. I'm I'm not a real fan of it. When I look through the shelves there, it's a lot of corporate organic stuff that you can't determine the origins of. I don't see some of the big labels of meat, other um, hard goods and stuff like that that are produced locally. Um, the, the co-ops are pure to their mission to support local, sustain, sustainably grown, organic, or fair trade. And, um, you know, their first mission is not necessarily to make a lot of money. So I see the co-ops as a resource, like a community farmer's market that's involved in the area, the community, and um, has an eye out for their customers, too. We've had, I think, an explosion of farmer's markets in um, at the moment, we don't really have the growers and producers to fill some of those. You see a lot of readily available food and crafts and things like that. These just tend to be a little tougher times right now for local growers for different reasons, economic reasons. Okay, and then we've got the you know the elephant in the room, Amazon. Amazon has uh, you know bought Whole Foods. So they are just in the middle of that stream there. What's it like as a small producer dealing with such, you know, biggest company in the known universe? Well, one thing they do well, and that is uh, sell product and ship it quickly without any human interaction. And uh, we've gotten a lot of pressure to pay to have our product listed in their system where it was free before. Um, A lot of things are rotating around big promotions, a prime discount, um, I live in a high-value world where I don't produce huge amounts of, of product. I produce a, a moderate amount of high-quality product, and I need to make a high margin on it. So it's been a real challenge to try to plug into uh, that kind of a market where I don't have a say if a prime customer um, wants an extra discount on a sale that we already have going. So they pass. I have never really understood how any of that works. So if a prime a prime member gets some kind of discount on Ames Farm honey. Like you're 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 subsidizing that. That's right. Oh, um, that's... At, the, at the co-ops, we can often go in and say, "Hey, let's do a fifteen percent off sale, and we'll split it fifty-fifty. That's pretty sweet. We don't get that kind of support, you know, from somewhere like Amazon or a larger uh, grocery. Yeah, I don't think people realize how I certainly don't realize, and I am you know kind of tuned into this stuff. How much um, these kind of these giant forces are coming into our our small lives? Like, I don't think we feel. I feel that. I don't know about it. It's kind of spooky. All right. So then, the next thing I want to talk to you about is. Uh, so we don't. Another thing we don't think about. I have been trying to get people to put in. You know, native plantings, put in a choke cherry tree, put in a, a, you know, red cedar, like put in whatever it is that's that's local that will help animals and and birds and insects and all things like don't just go to the garden center and fill your world with hydrangeas. There's a place for hydrangeas, but it's not everywhere. We can't have only hydrangeas on lawns because that's bad for everything. Uh, But you were saying that the uh, the basswood tree. I mean, I know that Minnesota basswood honey is delicious, but I, I don't totally understand basswood trees. Tell me about that. 
Well, it's a native tree here in Minnesota, and interestingly, when honeybees were brought over by European immigrants in the 1600s, a lot of the plants that they found in the New World were new to them. Um, Dandelions, clover, alfalfa came with the bees from Europe, but basswood trees were native here. And it's been at times in the past up to half of our honey crop here in this part of Minnesota. And a mature basswood tree, it's big. Some of them be 60, 80 foot tall with a huge crown. I estimate that a large tree like that could produce 500 pounds of honey. 500 pounds of honey. And a good. That's almost enough for me. Okay, so <laughs> so, uh, so these basswood trees are part of the native landscape. And, you know, people are putting up mansions, so many little mansions everywhere. Uh, and they're taking down these giant basswood trees and replacing them with like, arbor vitae, right? That or in a landscape version of a basswood tree. There, there's an area out near Mound where I keep bees in an ancient basswood forest, and I can see a development next door. And guess what it was named? Basswood Trail, something like that. And it's kind of uh, depressing because these huge old-growth trees were replaced with a landscape version. While it's useful for pollinators, it's a smaller tree. It just doesn't produce the same amount of nectar. Yeah, we just don't know enough about the world we live in. I come back to this again and again. I'm living in this world. I do not understand the role of basswood trees. Therefore, I have no opinion of basswood trees. I'm not doing nothing to help them. Okay, we got to take a little break here. I have one text. Uh, my big question about whether we're seeing insect populations decline uh, from the 320 definitely have noted a decrease in insect populations. Very few. Of the flying insects, a decreased windshield mess. I did notice a slight increase in butterflies. I bet that's all you milkweed planters, so God bless you. Thank you. Um, It said in the 50s they would spray whole towns for insects, but after they noticed a decrease in birds, they stopped the spraying. Yeah, that was the DDT revolution. And so it's not like these things are, are not changeable by us. We are the dominant force in the in the landscape at this point there is nothing bigger than us even with all this snow it doesn't feel that way um and so you know we could certainly change it there's a lot to know about all right if you have if you have any anecdotes about insects you're seeing fewer of them uh not as many fireflies as when you were a kid i want to know about this 81807 we're gonna take a break and to come back and talk to brian frederickson from ames farm a little more about what he's seeing in the flying universe of uh, honey and bees and insects and all those little flippity-flappity things that bring us almonds and apples and oranges. Dara here. All right, we're doing all things honeybee today. We're talking to Brian Fredrickson from Ames Farm. And, you know, you can always kind of check out his honey and things like that at amesfarm.com. All right, so I asked you about what you're seeing with bees. As always... Get a little smart Alec who says, get the bees out of here. They're not even native to this country. Uh, here's what. If you're going to not have honeybees, you can't have all of the crops in agriculture that we developed to go with honeybees. You're not going to have blueberries and avocados and almonds and all the yummy things. You won't have apples. So, you know, we could go back to... Um, you know, kind of a Native American sustainable farming situation, which was 
truly sustainable and we didn't have a lot of the tasty things and the land could not support millions and millions of us the way it is. So uh, if you don't want to have bees, you're not going to have a whole lot more. This is not uh, – I don't feel that they are an option. I feel that they are a necessity in the food supply and I think maybe you're being devil's advocate to be hilarious but I don't – I don't feel mirthful about this. OK. So um, here's a here's a question uh, I have which is – you know what? What can we do? What are the things to that we powerless people can do? I feel that I've got to like take a month off and learn a few things about nature and a land ethic. But uh, barring that, what else can we do? I think people forget about there's a lot of trees that are super beneficial to honeybees and other pollinators. The basswood you talked about, black locust, witch hazel, any of the honeysuckle. Um, I'm so tree ignorant. I don't know that I could. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever seen a black locust. I'm sure I have, but now that you've said it, I don't. Not ringing a bell. What is that? Um, it's uh, a white uh, um, flower. Uh, it's a tree that flowers in early June. Um, in Europe, they would call it acacia. It's from the same Robina. Um, Latin name. Okay, I've seen I've seen that word. <laughs> All right, so trees. We should we should start seeing trees. Is what you're telling me. That's one thing. Definitely, any uh, pollinator friendly landscape. If you have the room, um, you should be considering shrubs and and trees um, that last into later in the season. The unique thing about basswood trees is they're flowering the first week of Ju- July. That's really late. Almost all of our other trees, the fruit trees and so on, have flowered. But at that time of the year, the bees are at their peak and we're in prime honey season. That's why basswood is so important in this part of the world. If we lived in um, southern United States along the Gulf, Tupelo would be the tree or sourwood in in Georgia. Um, Out west, it's eucalyptus in California and sage, which is, of course, just a a shrub. Um, So while flowers are super important, um, trees can cover areas, ditches, fence rows, other landscaping type situations. Uh, trees have more flowers than a flower does. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I learned something. <laughs> okay. Um, I got a, a text. I live in St. Croix County, Wisconsin. Saw a dramatic increase in monarch butterflies this fall. Still the same amount of mosquitoes, though. Well, uh, that's. Um, a lot of people have been putting in milkweed. I put in a ton of milkweed. I have not seen many more. I will say, uh, for people that are interested in my lifelong journey with my choke cherry tree, right? So I have this small Minneapolis yard. I, you know, I excavated one corner of it. I mean, people, it was so funny. There was just cement blocks and like an old shoe. I mean, it was the this little corner of my yard was the very definition of a, a polluted, you know, just children's version of pollution. It was like, oh, I'm pulling up an old can. I'm pulling up an old shoe. Here's a cement block. Anyway, I got all that out of there. I planted a native choke cherry tree, which I drove out to uh, Prairie Restorations to buy because I was very like, I'm on, I'm doing this. I'm doing something good for the environment. It's thriving. My tree's doing great. I never see any choke cherries out of it because I think that the wildlife just love it so much. Um, and it's the funniest thing because it is swarmed with 
flying things that I don't recognize in the spring. It has these very unshowy flowers or I don't even I won't even bother trying to describe them. I don't know enough about the botany of any of this. But I will tell you, it is a rousing success. Everything loves this little corner of my yard, which is down by the alley, down by the trash cans. I feel very happy about it. And I didn't know, you know, I grew up in New York City and I knew nothing about chokecherry trees. Now I have one. All these little good things are happening. Like if everybody would do little things like that, it would make a difference. But probably big things such as uh, um, talking to your county commissioner about not using pesticides in the ditch would do more. All right. So let's talk about that. So what about the whole, you know, pesticide situation? We have so many herbicides and pesticides and biocides and I don't even know what. They're just coating everything. Did you know that in Ontario and parts of Canada, it's illegal for municipalities and private individuals to use chemicals for cosmetic reasons? That's been a law up there for a while. That's a good law. It's a good idea. And, you know, here in the United States, we have some really bright people that go to college. They work for these big companies and they keep creating these very effective products. These herbicides nowadays are sometimes a three-part mix that the county out where I live in Carver County uses. It's a systemic, which means it goes into the roots and it kills that thing dead, not just sort of knocks it back a little bit like maybe Roundup would. So Roundup gets a lot of attention. We hear about it in the lawsuits, but another really big change is the use of dicamba. Dicamba. What Uh, is it? There's Roundup-resistant weeds out there. So about three years ago, um, the U.S. the EPA authorized the use of dicamba. It's like 2,4-D, like you see in Chemlon. It kills everything except grass. Well, when they use this, it turns into a gas that can move uh, several miles, actually. In Arkansas and uh, Missouri, they've lost honey crops down there because this stuff moved off target and damaged wild plants that were you know, not agricultural plants. I would just say, selfishly, also, I don't want to breathe the dicamba cloud. That doesn't sound good. And I don't want that for the people that are making my food. I don't, all the valiant farmers and the farm workers, like, I don't want them breathing in dicamba clouds. We have a, a restriction here that was in place a year ago, no spraying of it after a certain date in June. Um, it is a bigger issue in the southern states where they have the heavier dew point a lot of humidity and so on. But I'm using these as an example of we just have very smart people that come out of college, they go to school, they work for these big companies. we got to put some sort of brakes on these technologies. Um, They're just going to get more deadly, more useful uh, in the sense, at least for the people that are trying to control vegetation and so on. They just keep creating a bigger market for it. We need some sort of moratorium or laws like I suggested earlier. No cosmetic use of chemicals. I I don't need cosmetic poison. All right, I got a question. Are the Japanese beetles competing with bees? I I haven't seen that, although um, I did hear that the 30 below we had probably knocked them back pretty good. I, I never saw them in my orchard in the 90s and early 2000s. We've had a bigger problem here the last two or three years. Yeah, I got them for the first time last year. Um, and I started seeing them just in the parks and out and about for the first time last year. Uh, I got another question about them. Why are we only seeing an increase in Japanese beetles and Asian beetles? I actually noticed more bees in my flower beds last summer than in recent years. Well, I don't know. 
One thing I would point out about bees is uh, beekeeping and other bee populations are local. So it might be happening in your neighborhood, might be something different several miles away. Habitat is critical. So if you have habitat and places for the wild uh, bees to live and food for them, that's a good environment. Um, I think I've told this story before, but I have these, uh, uh, you know, zone four, very hardy rose bushes. And a couple of years ago, I started seeing these little circles cut out in the leaves. And I thought it was, you know, some kind of infestation. But then I got busy and <laughs> have time. And then eventually I learned, oh, that's leafcutter bees. And then I started seeing them. And so what they do is they find a hollow stick, like a rose cane or something else. And then they put in a larva and they put in a little circle of leaf. They put in a larva. They put in a little circle of leaf. Now I am so happy to see those little cutouts on my leaves. I think, oh, leafcutter bees, some bee mamas through here making little blankets for her babies. Well, and I, I think what we're going to see is as the climate changes and the uh, land use changes, certain insects and animals, birds and so on, are going to be favored and some are not. We have an evolving uh, sort of landscape here after hundreds and thousands of years of things being very stable and the seasons being more predictable. Like if spring comes a month late for a native bee, there's no beekeeper there to feed it. So this this is what's happening out there as the weather changes, the, the food that's available is changing because of the climate or land use. Populations are up and down depending on how things are being favored in those areas. Yeah, climate change. I remember last year the ice out was so late and I was seeing all of these uh, ducks and Canadian geese and everything that had flown north for the summer was just standing on the ice like, what happened? Yeah, we um, old-time beekeepers pretty much would take care of their bees and make their honey crop on a calendar, like you do things by a certain day of the month. That just doesn't work anymore. I've seen in the 25 years of keeping bees, we make uh, more honey now in May and June and less in the middle of the summer. Um, the oh, in the middle of summer is supposed moving. to be like that's when you're you know, putting things up for the winter. That's right. Last summer, was a, it just came to a stop after about July 10th last year in this region. Nobody really made any honey. We did see a nice After July crop. 10th? Mm-hmm. That's early. It is early. And, um, you know, those of us who are uh, looking at the changing landscape and, and weather, um, gamble, if you want to call it that, we put our honey boxes on early. We did okay at Ames Farm, but in general, you know, the region and, of course, across the United States, it was not a very good honey season. Yeah, you were telling me, too, in the green room that there have been, you know, states where they'll just suddenly get a lot of rainfall unexpectedly, and that'll take out a whole honey crop because if it comes at the right time of year. That's right. So Too, too much rain or not enough. We're, we're like other farmers, never – Everything is never perfect, right? But we are getting these big gyrations um, of either no rain for a long time or just way too much right in the middle of the growing season. Yeah, that's what that's what February has been, right? That's a, a remarkable amount of moisture has come out of the air and dumped on our, on our heads. Um, okay, so I don't know what to do. Maybe we need to have a... a, a WCCO book club and we all just read about the environment and how we're going to get this get this uh, uh, go. All right, we've got uh, somebody who's saying that, that that dicamba is an old chemical and it was uh, largely used until the 90s when GMO technology 
allowed, uh, you know, Roundup and those kind of things. And if you want more bees, tell that I'm supposed to tell you to buy a hundred, couple hundred acres and let it go to weeds. Well, my friend, um, yeah, weeds are what are weeds? Like weeds is the weeds are the is the system that we all evolved in the system grew up in you know uh and it's not about one person with a honey bee the reason i have ryan Fredrickson here from ames farm is because he's on the ground like he sees a bunch of this stuff um we are you know you want to talk about canaries and coal mines if we don't have bees pollinating our food what are we going to do? We're just going to sit around and and just eat soy protein all day. I mean, we got to eat us. We got to eat fruits and vegetables, and our bodies are made for that. I'm looking out for you. I am looking out for you, person who feels cynical about weeds. I am on your side, even though you don't want me to be. I think that you need fruits and vegetables and a nuts and a whole bunch of different foods so that you can be healthy. And those bees are part of your life, whether you want them to be or you just live in denial about it. And that, that is what I have to say about you. I'm going to come be your mom, whether you need me to do or not, apparently. Ah, it's very important that we have all of these things and that these bees are giving us information. And, you know, other insects are giving us information if we were there to collect it. The miracle thing about bees is that there's human beings watching them and writing down how much honey they make. Nobody's, you know, really tracking all the diverse other bees. Nobody's keeping track of the mason bees. Nobody's paying for anyone to do it, and therefore no one is doing it. All right, mason bees. That's another thing I know about those two words together. I did not know that there was a bee that would go in the ground and do things with mud. There's a, bees are really miraculous. You were telling me in the green room that they're breeding a different kind of hygienic bee now that can go around and sniff out mites in the beehive and toss out any infest, infested uh, pupae or whatever. That's incredible. It is pretty amazing, um, the understanding of how bees operate at a very detailed level in their nest is probably the key to um, raising more healthy bee colonies. We're working with a queen breeder out east, Adam Finkelstein, that uh, raises VSH or varora sensitive hygiene bees. And this is a behavior that exists in bees in nature. He's uh, done research on how to select that and raise bees from those genetics. And so they're like little doctor bees, and they go through the hive, and they find infections, and they toss them out? That, that's a, yeah, a simple uh, way of explaining it, yeah. I like a simple way of explaining it. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'm going to let uh, Mr. Brian Fredrickson go back to the world of the six-legged and uh, if you want to find him, he's going to be at the Mill City Farmer's Market next week. You want to talk to him about how to put in basswood trees, how to support local beekeepers. He will be there also selling his beautiful honey, which I love very much. If you just want the honey and you don't want to go to uh, Mill City Farmer's Market, you can find Ames Farm Honey at the co-ops and also at amesfarm.com. Brian, thank you for coming in. Thank you, Dara. It's always a pleasure. All right, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about honey recipes. We will have a nice Ask Me Anything. You can text me, 81807. All right, so here's what uh, I'm hearing for you, hearing from you. I've got somebody in the Mac Groveland area of St. Paul, and they are beekeepers in their neighborhood. 
That is so great. And our son has also started keeping bees out in Andover. We're all for more bees and more places for them, more restaurant hives on top of businesses. Yep, I'm, I'm all for it. You know, we, we're, we have come out of giant crises, environmental crises before. I do believe uh, that we could do this. You could really do anything. There used to be leaded gasoline. There was lead on everything. Remember that we switched away from that. There used to be a giant hole in the ozone layer. We fixed that. There used to be DDT, uh, you know, killing all the birds. You know, all it takes is people deciding to do it. All it takes is is just a will to change, a decision to change, a decision that tomorrow is going to be better than today, a little step here and a little step there. Also, you can eat some honey. All right, that's a, a wild transition, but here we go. I thought what would be fun to talk about today when we're thinking about how amazing bees are. Well, I thought it would be fun to talk about honey recipes. They're all up at WCCORadio.com. They look good. You can find them by going to WCCORadio.com or the shortcut WCCORadio.com slash menu or slash Dara. All right, so here's what I have. First of all, just honey plus cheese. Here's the easiest thing, but if you just drizzle, you put your cheese on a plate, it could be a lovely fresh goat cheese. I love Minnesota goat cheese, so many good ones, Wisconsin goat cheese. We live in a wonderful cheese world. But, you know, cheddar, mascarpone, uh, gouda, they all just drizzle a little honey on a cheese. Look, you're fancy. You're practically in a restaurant. It's so good. All right, another nice honey recipe. If you are a sweet rib person, I have the best recipe for a honey-glazed baby back ribs and a whiskey marinade. It's just very very nice. How about a classic Minnesota recipe, a honey lemon bunt cake? If you know me, you know that I love bunt pans because I love – who doesn't love bunt pans? They're made in Minnesota. They're American. They're recycled aluminum. The new ones are. They're cute as a button and so many good recipes. So I got a straight-up Nordic Ware recipe for a honey lemon beehive cake. You can make this in any bunt pan. You don't need their fancy beehive one, though it's very cute. Uh, And I will say I have made this cake a few times. I like it very much. I use a little more vanilla and the zest from the lemons when I'm putting in the lemon juice because why not? More. More, more, more zest, more lemon flavor. My number two recipe of putting up, honey hot toddy. Is it cold season? Do you feel cold coming on? Honey hot toddy is a really good thing. I have had up a a fine cooking recipe. Isn't that like you've been shoveling all day? Maybe you're out there listening to my voice, like trying to, you know, shovel out the garage or something. And you start to feel like, oh, no, I'm coming down with something. That's when it's time for a honey hot toddy. And the last, this is kind of a hipster thing. Here's what people are doing. They call it hot honey. This is what you do. You just take some honey and some dried crushed chili peppers or some fresh jalapeno slices, some kind of pepper, and you warm it. You warm it on the stove or in the microwave, and you let the the pepper and the honey kind of hang out together for about 10 minutes when everything's warm. Now you drain it. You strain the peppers out, or it will just continue to be hot. And you could use, use that for anything. You can put it on 
cheese, like we said at the beginning, or bread, ice cream, pound cake, salmon. Yes, really. Uh, you know, some people say it's an next ketchup. I don't know about that, but it's a good thing to do. And look at all you've made these recipes. Think about how many amazing honey moments you've had, how many flowers, how many beekeepers. I think, you know, kind of keeping your wits about you and not uh, not getting bad honey, fake honey is important. Oh, those are all the things. All right, I got a question not on the <laughs> not on the topic of bees and honey, which is uh oh, it's a recipe, recipe thing. Someone is making homemade dumpling dough and everything. That I like to hear. Is that but I don't know what kind of dumplings. There's so many dumplings. Are you doing a a Chinese dumpling like a pot sticker or are you doing an American dumpling like a chicken and dumpling? Here's my feeling about it. All dumplings are great. I've never met a dumpling that I did not love very, very much. All right, I got a question. Oh, somebody is uh, looking to switch out their coffee situation, their home coffee. Want to talk about, you know, what to do. Well, uh, you know, I think that there are so many options. I love a French press. I find it very, that's like a, a strength of coffee that I like very much. Uh, a lot of people are doing kind of pour overs at home. There's uh, ones with filters built in and that's like a little um, funnel and you put it on and you put the grounds in it and you just rest that thing on top of your cup. That's very easy to do. Um, I would say, yeah, why don't you do that? I've actually had my eye on a, a mason jar French press. So what is that? You're just using a, you know, a 16 ounce mason jar as the outside. And then there's a a French press that sits inside of it. That seems very sustainable and reusable to me. I do not like to just buy things again and again. I think that's a, a, not a good economic plan in life. I think you try to, you know, buy fewer things, um, keep your costs down. Here, there's some economic advice for you. Okay, <laughs> so I would say try those. Try one of those little um, those little funnels that sit on top that pour over because it's it, the ones that have the filter built into them. They're you know you buy it once. You could use that for years. It's very inexpensive, and you get a good good quality coffee out of that. Um, you know you're grinding your own beans, of course, because that's very thrifty and better quality, and it will taste better. Um, so don't buy a Keurig because then you're going to be paying 55 bucks a pound for coffee and not even realize it. All right. So next week, what are we going to do? I think let's do a winter beer show. You know, is the big trend still milkshake IPAs or have we moved on? All right. Should we cast from society everyone involved with that Lucky Charms beer or is being cast from society too good for them? (laughs) We'll maybe talk about all that next week. Till then, uh, good luck not going stir crazy in this last week of this winter that won't give up. So may your heart stay open, but your jacket zipper continue to close. And I'll meet you here next week on Off the Menu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. 
Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.